What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Jennifer Bandier. Jennifer is the founder of Bandier, a women's luxury activewear boutique that she started in 2014. With pretty much just a vision and virtually no fitness or fashion experience, Jennifer launched her first store in Southampton, New York, after spending most of her career as a music industry executive managing artists and groups such as the R&B trio TLC. We spoke with Jennifer all about her upbringing and how she caught the entrepreneurship her learnings from the music industry, the early challenges of launching her first store, and much more. Here we go. So I actually am staying right near where I grew up. I grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. When I was little, we li- I was actually born at Mount Sinai Hospital, which is right up the block. And my whole life was the Upper East Side. And I thought I was so cosmopolitan and sophisticated. And I lived with my mom. My parents got divorced when I was pretty young. We're not pretty young, but like 11 or around then. And, but to this day, my mom is such a great person. She reached out to my dad about 20 years ago and was like, because I don't think my dad would have had the courage to say to her, you know, like we'd love to come for the holidays. So she invited him. So my stepmother of like 35 years and my mother and my stepfather also of a thousand trillion years, they all have the holiday and I have a half brother. He joins us. So it's really nice. We all, my mom brought that all together. So I grew up in this, in a very nice part, but I also grew up in LA a lot because my dad worked in the music business and we would spend He was, I didn't know what producing or whatever that was. I still really don't know what it is, but I spent enough time going to LA with him and just like him traveling around and taking me to different music things that, that I was exposed to music at such a young age. Mm -hmm. And so like being split between, you know, New York and LA and sort of these like two different, sounds like two different lives in a way. What was that like? I mean, was that something that, was like you were comfortable with or was it you know what's so interesting when my parents got divorced I was so confused because I thought they had the best marriage because they never spoke to each other (laughs) like I never saw them interact so I was I was like what what do you mean you're getting divorced like you never fight you never I have my mom and my grandmother had a baby at the same time so my sister and who's and my aunt are three months apart Mm. and so we grew up with her as part of our family. And we were talking about it like a year ago. She said, did you notice that your parents like never spoke to each, like you thought they got along so great because they never fought. They didn't interact with each other. And I, I, it wasn't really hard, you know, that cause my dad was in New York and LA. I think he, once they got divorced, I saw them a lot more, both of them. They're both fiercely like doing whatever they wanted to do. And growing up in New York gave me my mother's one thing was that she wanted us to be independent and not be afraid to do things and call and ask. And, you know, that was like a small, I thought like, what is she doing this? Or she'd send us away. I was so angry. She sent me away at six to camp. And I was like, this is cruel and inhumane treatment. (laughs) And she was like, you're going to have a great time. And I did have a great time and it gave me independence. So when I grew up, I mean, I was able to sort of go anywhere and I don't think she was so independent. So I think it, it, it totally reflects who I am now and the person I am. So Jen, you talk about your father and, you know, we did a little bit of homework ourselves as well. 
Uh, and he was an executive at Sony ATV for, you know, over a decade uh, as the CEO, right, of the, of the company. Um, what was it like growing up being the daughter of, you know, someone who was so high up and so influential in the music industry? I mean, what sort of impact did that have on you as a, you know, as a young adult? My dad and I are very similar, even though he'd be like, we're not, because he's not worked out a day in his life. When I told him about the idea, he said, do people really work out? I said, yes, they really do. Um, my dad was a pioneer and visionary in the sense in the 70s, he was into publishing. Publishing was like the stepchild of the record company. To be the president of a record company was like, they made a joke once that Bill Clinton was like the president, looked like the president of a record company. And you know what? It was like the coolest thing. But my dad was so into the copyright and the, the songwriting process. And at first I was like, why is he doing this? And then it became the opposite. You know, being in the music industry was all about publishing right. and he saw the value in it. And I was asking him the other day when I knew we were doing this, I was like, what he said, um, he remembered, like, I think TWA, he owned the song Up, Up, and Away. That was from the, you guys are way too young to know it. I only know it because he would play it or a Glenn Campbell song, I think Southern Nights. And like, they would, he would be able to take Up, Up, and Away and use it in a TWA commercial. Right. But I didn't ever put that together as a child. But he, he was super, super smart. Brain got into all great schools, but his father took him up to Syracuse and when he was like, this is where you're going to go. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where he met my mom. And how did he sort of start in the music business? I mean, did he like kind of fall into it or was it something, a passion of his as well? Passion music. I, I would say my dad, I love music. It got me through my whole life. And when I tell you more about my childhood, you're, you'll understand why music was such a huge component. And it's still like the only thing that motivates me to work out. I'm not somebody who works is naturally inclined to do breath work and go for a run. Mm -hmm. I'm just not that person. I, I can think of a million reasons why I shouldn't go for a run or go to a class, but music is the, the key. Once I put a song on, on like decibel 10, not even loud enough now, because I think I've done damage to my ears. It's like I could do, I could go for hours. So I think my dad is the same way. He loves music. We grew up listening to ELO, Motown. We had a jukebox in our house that had the first two Blondie albums that aren't even really, they're not, you know, people think Heart of Glass was her first or the one that says Blondie, but they were yeah. two before. And what, they sounded very 50s, like my girl, the guy, I don't know who the guy was, but from my girlfriend's back and he's going to be trouble. I'm like singing the Hess truck thing, but it's not that. It was yeah. the original. Same guy that produced that album produced Debbie Harry's first album. So it sounds a little 50s, but we grew up like around, you know, right. a lot of musicians and it was very cool. And the Prince album, we had the first Prince album. And I was like, I didn't really even know Prince until the early eighties when I was, or mid eighties, you know, yeah. really yeah. when he, you know, what's like one um, significant sort of memory you have from that time that kind of stood out, maybe something that like an experience you had having had this, having this father, who's like such an influential figure in the space and getting to meet all these incredible people. Like, can you share that with us? 
Well, I think, you know, one of the most incredible things, first of all, was going to concerts at such a young age. You know, I went to see Bruce Springsteen the first time he ever played at Madison Square Garden. And I remember saying, why are they going boo like Bruce? But I thought they were I was so young. I thought they were booing him. I'm like, why did they pay money to come to this? And uh, I just, you know, a, a cool thing going to see. I always loved uh, Jeff Lynn as a songwriter, ELO. Yep. I, if you haven't seen the hit, uh, Mr. Blue Sky. It is incredible. That's he, an incredible documentary. That's one of my favorite albums, Free Falling. And he wrote that entire album and produced it with him. They ran into each other at a at a stoplight in L.A. Maybe you guys, that's how you started the podcast. <laughs> Close enough. We ran into each other at a stoplight at USC, but, you know, same thing. Um, I have a niece there right now. Huh? Niece, I have a niece oh, from amazing. New York who's at USC amazing, now. Amazing, Great school. You pretty much begged the question when you said that, you know, you love music and it's and we'll understand why when you tell us more about your childhood. So what, what do we have to know? Well, I think that something very important is that when I was kid, was growing up, I was the worst student. They told my parents that I was stupid. I, I was, would be lucky to re meet someone that would marry me. I mean, horrible things. They're like, she's just not smart. Her sister is smart, but Jennifer is not. And my mom was like, I don't get it. You know, Jennifer is so smart. She's just, I was different. I beat to my own drummer. You know, I did things my way. I didn't want to be like everyone else. I was very influenced by like being my own person and not, not defiant and disrespectful, but I had no self-esteem because I was so bad at school. And if you're constantly failing and so bad, and everyone in your family is in, like you have the math Olymp Olympics in your family, and everyone's so successful, and they're like, what happened to Jennifer? So, you know, early on, I developed such a, like, no self-esteem, no confidence. I just was like, I thought, you know, I just experienced failure after failure, and honestly, I had so much shame as a result of it, and I really wanted to say this today because I feel like if I could reach one person that feels like they can't do it or they, you know, how is this is impossible. I am living proof. I mean, I would like to say, go fuck yourself to my third grade teacher who told my mother that I was defiant, stupid and an idiot because I was wearing my mom and I had, my mother really wanted us to travel and see the world. So we would either go to two places. We'd either go to like Europe or, you know, go see different parts, like visit different amazing cities or she would take us to a spa to lose weight. And so that was like, but that was a very, there were very few places. And I was so hungry. I remember eating green Tums as like, I was like, these are so good. Those are, because those are like, great. They're really good. They don't work. They don't work. Gaviscon is the only thing that it works. works mentally. Like mentally, I'm like, <laughs> I'm protected now from that garlic spread I'm about to eat. I, 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 it's so funny. I have been thought about them in so long, but you know, my mother, the teacher, we got this outfit in Paris. It came with a hat. And I wouldn't say it was a fashionista, but I was so excited to wear. It was the shoes, the hat, the whole look. And the teacher said, you know, Jennifer, please take off your hat or Jenny. And I said, no, it goes with my outfit. I wasn't trying to be defiant. It just, it was so important. And the whole, they were so angry. They were going to throw me out of school. She basically told my mother and my mom was like, good for you for not, you know, giving in to her. You wanted to wear that. What's the big deal? 
Mm-hmm. Did you, you know, yeah. Jeffrey, did you ever believe those things? I mean, I, yes. like, did you, I believed I was stupid and useless and I had no self-esteem. I felt, I mean, I honestly was so embarrassed because everyone around me, like in my friends and that were going to other schools were doing so well. And they'd always like, they'd be like the shadow of Jennifer Van Deer is so bad. Uh, you know, she's such a bad student. She's not her sister. I mean, it, the, I heard a lot of, if she would just apply herself. But the reality was I had a learning disability. But if you're, if you're like that bothered by it, um, because, because that's something that I can relate with. Um, like I was very similar, but more so like in high school. Um, I had counselors I that too. basically told me like I would never go to college and never amount to anything in front of my mom's face. And, but I, at the time, I, I, maybe I was a little bit older, so I kind of felt like these people just don't get me, but it's fine. Like I don't, they're, they're just, I just don't have to care about them because I, I believe in myself and I can, I'll figure it out. But I'm curious if you, if you were, if it was something that really bothered you, did you feel, did you try to like fix that? Like, did you try no, to be a I, good student? Did you try my, to fit in? There was a stigma in my generation. Like it doesn't exist today, which is so amazing. I would have gone to a special school and gotten the help, but it was such a bad labeling or, you know, stigma at that time that they were like, you know, we'll just, I really never learned anything because I had a tutor that helped me. And I mean, I liked, I was a voracious reader. I did like reading, but I was just, I failed at school. I shouldn't have gone to college. I did never graduated from college. Well, I think it's a failure, not on you, on the education system. And I can go on days and days on this because it's, it's such, it's designed as a one size fits all model where everyone sort of have to, has to like fit into that system, which is completely wrong because everyone's built differently. Everyone has different upbringings and different interests and different ways they go about life. And who's to say like one is right and one isn't, you know what I mean? And so I, I don't, I mean, but at the time you felt like you were a failure. So I guess, like, was there anyone in your life that was, that maybe saw something in you that was like, you know my what, mom, Jen, like, yeah. My mom was like, there is nothing wrong with you all the time. She's like, you are unique, you're original and you beat to your own drum. And I'm so proud of you. And it was never like you're, because they would, I think if you weren't a good student, you were a bad person, like you're a bad kid. I was like, not a bad kid. I mean, I was like, good kid. I was just like, I didn't have the support and help that I needed. So I had no self-esteem. And I was, until I was older and had self-awareness, then I learned like, that was what, if you don't, if you're judged as a child based on academics is your only, you know, that's going to give you self-esteem or sports. My sister was brainiac, great. She was like my idol. I wanted to always be her. She was like incredible. She, and we're still super close, but it was always like, she's not Allison. Like, I don't know what happened to her. Like they were like, did you know, it was just terrible. And I honestly, I was so ashamed, but I say that because I, you know what? I think it's so important for women to show vulnerability, especially when you live on the Upper East Side, there's a perfection element of being a woman. Even probably in, Cal- you know, wherever city you are, there's an element that women always want to put on. My life is perfect. It's like, how are you? Great. It's the best. I'm good. You know, I was the, my child is this. Everything was the worst with me. So now everything is great. So Jen, when did you kind of figure out, hey, you know, I am actually original. I am unique. And, and what did you do to kind of 
move forward or move on from this mindset of I'm just not good enough? I think it took me a long time. I think it took me till, I, I mean, I don't think it's, I think I'm still like on a work in progress and like constantly trying to be as self-aware, but you know, a lot of times like, you know, people would come in my store for instance and go, I can't believe the biggest reaction the first summer was, I can't believe I didn't think of this idea. And I thought, I can't believe I thought of it, but you know, I, I had a lot of ideas. It just was, I just was constantly told how, you know, terrible I was and like how stupid and this. So finally, I think as an adult, I finally, you know, when you grow up, you like all of a sudden I had some moment, I think, where I just sort of took back the night and was like, you know what? I'm not stupid. Like I have, there's something wrong with me. And I, I I mean, there was no help to be, I think it was past, but I think I just learned things differently. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, your early career. I mean, what did you set out to do uh, once you were kind of out of the education system? Well, originally um, I'd always worked all through high school, you know, even if it was for a month or the summer or part-time, um, which I think was a great thing because it gave, that gave me some sort of self-value to accomplish. I was, even if I was answering phones at, I worked at MTV, which by the way, when I worked at MTV in like 1990, huh. was an intern. I was like, have I gone to heaven? Like, what is, I was like begging to answer the phone. So I was willing to do anything. I loved music. I, growing up in New York, so I loved listening. My dad liked a lot of like Motown. We listened to every Motown song you could imagine. He also loved um, classic rock and like we loved Steve Miller. And we, I would go to, like, when you asked me before, we would go to ELO and it was like a spaceship concert. And they, I was inside the spaceship. I was like, oh my God, no, I was young, but I look back and I think I was so aware of all this music because, and it became such a huge part of my life, having older siblings. My sister wasn't as in, she loves pop music. I'm purely classic rock or hip hop. Mm-hmm. Growing up in New York in the eighties, that was, it was all about for me. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause I mean, I'm definitely someone that loves music too, but, and, and I had an internship at a, at a music label, but I think that kind of wasn't quite like what I was looking for. Like I, I, I love, I love music. I love like even working on music and creating music and that kind of stuff. But when it came to like working at a label, um, I don't know, I kind of felt like it kind of sucked, not sucked the passion out, but it was so different than what I expected. But for you, like, how did you, how did you kind of um, marry the two? Like how, your so passion I and then worked, also. I worked at record and then my ex-husband and I started a music management company mm-hmm. and I had worked at HMV, which is like Tower Records, but in the UK. Okay. And I love that. That was incredible. And then I went on to work um, in music management and we had this opportunity. It was like 1998. We got a call to, see if we wanted to fly down to Atlanta to meet with TLC. Now they had been going through a lot of managers. They were about to make fan mail. And I, I could, to me, they were the epitome in 1994, I think, or 93 is 92. Maybe the album came out there, you know, their original album. And I always respected and thought they were the most incredible artists. I couldn't believe I mostly worked with people that I was not into. I, or that were like, not the dream. They were like, the dream. 
And we, my ex-husband said, we're so committed. We'll move to Atlanta. I was like, we will. So we moved to Atlanta and we were there for a while. And then life on the road, you know, it takes a toll. Lisa passed away. They're touring now. I don't know how they're like, and they're making a musical, but they, they really, I learned so much from those girls and it was just an extraordinary experience being on the road and the whole experience of like we had 18 trucks or maybe even more, but you know, it was just about uh, being present and being, I was on a crazy schedule. Mm -hmm. It was like, I was up all night, like I am now, and then sleep for like a couple hours in the morning. Then I could sleep till like one. Right. Yeah. I was like, I, I probably could now today also. It's funny. But, I, I recently uh, discovered uh, that I'm like 90% sure T-Boz lives like a few houses down from me. She did live in LA. Now she lives in Atlanta. Oh, so she moved back. Okay. Yeah, she moved. Yeah. She was living there. And she's, I met one of my closest friends through them. She was their stylist. We speak it. I'm very into basketball. <laughs> I love basketball. Not football as much. I love basketball. I love the story behind the player. That's where I I have like my like I'll you know I was talking to my husband now Neil who we work together, and I was saying something about Jimmy Butler a couple of years ago, and he's like, "Do you know his story?" So I did a deep dive into Jimmy, and I became obsessed. And then he was dating Selena Gomez this past year for a minute, and I kept calling my dad and saying, "What's the deal with Selena and Jimmy Butler?" <laughs> he's like. Are you seriously asking me this? I said, I want to know. Can you like Selena's at the game? Because I, but I, his story is so inspiring. I don't know if you know it, but just, I, I love basketball. That was a huge, my favorite is the U S open though, because it reminds me, I've been going also since I was a, a it's kid. also very my close dad, to you. Yes. <laughs> my dad's very into sports, like hardcore into the Yankees, not into baseball as much i think that, that game is super fun but that's not as fun but i'm nicks yes we've been going to nicks games Amazing. hard it's very painful but the u.s open because it's the only it's the first place that women were equal yep. to men i was thinking about it so you're now you know what year is this that you and your ex-husband have the music management company uh it was like uh i'm trying to think um 1998 Till the early 2000s. Oh. So, you know, I'm just thinking about being a music manager and just kind of everything that comes with it versus, you know, being a founder, right? And sure, you're the founder of the music management company, but when you're managing somebody, any sort of talent, you're really just kind of at their beck and call, right? It's just they are the talent. They are the business. You're the one that's managing that. How? Did you enjoy that? I mean, as somebody who's now become an entrepreneur founder, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I, I loved it because I, I have a work attitude that like, if I love what I'm doing, I'll do whatever you need me to do. If you need me to go pick up food, I'm happy to do that. If you need to come, you know, want to complain to me or discuss this or whatever it was, I was happy to, to do that. But I didn't get the worst, like my ex-husband really got more of that. I was more involved with the creative and working with them. And, and we, it wasn't, it, it actually was, you know what, I'm just have a, I think working is very different from it was than what it is today. How so? Meaning I, I like when I worked at MTV, I was so excited to get the phone. 
I don't, you know, in my office, sometimes I see kids, they're like, don't, it's like an inconvenience to pick up the phone. I'm like, it, your phone is ringing. I, you know, I yeah. just think it's, you know, that's, so, that's an interesting point. I think, I think at least in my perspective is, you know, there's definitely been a change in attitude from an employee perspective, right? As in terms of what we should and shouldn't be doing, you know, if somebody's hired as a manager or, you know, is leading a department, it's like, why would I pick up the phone? Like there should be like an admin doing that work. And so I think everybody's always concerned with like, this isn't my responsibility. This isn't necessarily what's going to get me the skills that is going to get me to the next level. But I think that that's the wrong approach. I think that, a true kind of entrepreneurial person would realize that most of the job is shitty, right? Like objectively shitty, but that's what makes the successful people successful. They were able to get through the shitty times and that's why it's all, you know, rosy now because they had to answer the phones. They had to go on runs. They had to just, you know, basically kiss their client's ass at times and do things that they didn't have to do or didn't want to do. It's just different, right? So, how do you think that now, I guess, as a manager, how do you manage those types of people, right? The newer generation. I mean, at the moment, I have to say that that the Bandier employees have been so incredible, especially like the store employees. The team we have is phenomenal and everyone in the office. But I, anyone that's an entrepreneur that will get on the show and say to you, it's just lovely every day. It's like, you know, I'm having like, espresso with like a scone and hanging out thinking about how perfect it is life can suck and it really tough and you have a lot of hard decisions right. and it, it's it's up and down yeah. and some days it's really high and some days it's really low and I just I don't know I try and you know make sure we it you know what I once heard somebody say that 50 percent when you hire someone you know through an agency or an ad or whatever, it works 50% of the time. And I think it's sort of true. You know, it's better usually when we get someone recommended by someone mm -hmm. because you just never know if you're going to, it doesn't mean they're a bad worker. You just not, not mesh together. Right. So it takes a long time to find the right team. Right. Yeah. So um, you mentioned it was kind of late nineties, early two thousands. And then what ended up happening uh, like after that? I actually went into the pet industry and I would do shows at like in Atlantic city, the HH backer show, which doesn't even exist. And QVC found me there. I made customized pet beds with their photos, but you, you couldn't upload your photo. I mean, think about it now. You just text whatever, but then you couldn't, you had to mail the photo in and it was a whole process and it failed. You know, it, it ended up not being a great, it was so much work. It gave me so much aggravation. How did and that happen though? Like, how did you get into that? They, well, I, I saw it and I thought, wouldn't it like, and it was super expensive. I saw like a bag that was super expensive with a photo on it mm -hmm. of like someone's family or, and I was, I have like a million rescue dogs. So, um, I thought it would be great if I could do that on a, a, you know, in a little bag that was affordable that everyone could have. So I started a business. It was called Luxorama. My, I had a friend, a couple of friends that worked with me, but 
it was like I really learned about business and I didn't know what a cog was at the time. I mean, these are all things. Again, I didn't go to business school. I didn't even graduate from college. I barely graduated from high school. And that, you know, there were all things that I learned sort of on the job, but it was failure leads, I, you know, is the pathway to success because yeah. without it, you know, what's, what is like, what are a couple, you mentioned cogs, but like, what are a couple of things that maybe you learned that you still use today that like you can, you can kind of tie back to that first experience as like a business owner or entrepreneur? I think really, you know, thinking about the cost of goods, you know, how much the handbag was caught, you know, was making plus shipping, you know, learning all of that. I learned, I mean, it was more like I was leading for the first time I was doing something out on my own. And, you know, when I, when I worked with TLC, they were hugely That album was hugely successful and we toured, but it was so much work that it was, and there was a lot of pain. Tian, uh, has sickle cell and she would be in the hospital often. And, and Lisa passing away was just a really rough moment. This was like the first thing that I could like stand behind and create. I'm like very, you know, even though I was a terrible student, student, I was super creative and had like a lot of ideas or, you know, sometimes when somebody, my dad would tell me he was doing a TV show, I'd be like, that sucks. Why would you do that? And he would be like, what are you talking about? Don't say that. But he, we were just talking about, he produced a TV show called the kids from fame it was based off the movie. And I would, and I wa- just rewatched the movie fame. It was such a great movie. And I, but I, I was telling everyone at work, I'm like, you guys should watch it for fashion inspo for dance. Cause what we do at Bandier, we have a few different private labels and one of them has more dance clothing. They're not called Bandier. They're different names. So mm-hmm. speaking of fashion, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm jumping ahead in a few years here, but when did, and, and I know you said that even on those trips to Europe, you were always, you know, this, and, and at school always into fashion and kind of were like this little fashionista. When did you think that you may get into the business of fashion? I, I mean, I love fashion, but I'm also very practical. Like I hate the idea of buying a gown that I'm going to wear once like, or something, you know, like I'm very practical and I'm very, I like to wear very classic things. Like, I don't know. I probably went through a phase where I didn't, but I wear, I must have a million black Mm t-shirts. Every time I buy one, my husband says, really, you need a, you have drawers of black t-shirts. And I said, I'm sorry. You know, it's like I go through phases, but I always love fashion and it's part of music, you know, making videos, music videos were, I mean, it was such a huge industry. And I would always get excited. Um, I never wanted to work in a magazine or anything like that. But I loved um, looking at all the fashion. I got excited by new new product, I think, excites me the most. Mm -hmm. So um, I sort of fell into this business because um, I ended up uh, breaking my foot. And I would love to tell you I was in the Swiss Alps snowboarding, but I was at a bris. Mm -hmm on the West side. And I had the most, like one of those spills where your face is on the ground. It didn't hurt, but my, my foot was like this big, all it was like, I was like, what happened to my foot? And I was in a cast for five months. And when I got out, the doctor said to me, you know, the only thing you can do is walk. So it, I wasn't working at that time. And that's what I started doing, walking all day. 
And then one, I couldn't find clothing that reflected the way I felt on the inside. Like I felt like I wanted to be this cool New Yorker, but I couldn't find a brand that represented that. So I looked online, I found all these brands. And then one day I was in Central Park and I'm like walking one of our, we just rescued a dog. And um, she, I felt bad. I was poor, making this dog walk like 15 miles a day with me, but she's, she was a hunting dog. So she was probably happy. But um, I was like, why is there no multi-brand activewear boutique? And then I looked at every potential store and I heard, don't do, if it was a good idea, don't you think somebody else would have thought of it? I was like, that's very, very confidence boosting. <laughs> and around what year is this? That was around 2012, 13. Yeah. I spent the years before that I spent trying, after I let, finished Luxorama, I was trying to have a baby and I didn't work. And then I, strangely, a lot of women say this, I got pregnant on my own and without, we had done IVF, I think nine times or eight times, whatever it is. My husband was here. He would say it was a different number. He always 17 400 <laughs> times we did IVF. And then I finally got pregnant. And I had a miscarriage at like almost five months pregnant. And I remember the doctor saying to me, uh, you're, we're not going to be able to take care of it till next week. I was like, are you kidding me? I, I can't like exist like this. I was, and I said, I, after that moment, I said, my life cannot be about just having a child. Like if, it, if it's, first of all, I would adopt a child. I mean, I love, could love anything. So I just said, I need to focus on something else. And then I ended up breaking my foot and starting the birth of Bandir in Central Park in my head. Yeah, and you're, you notice this like you notice this like sort of uh, not op like opportunity, but like a gap that you're like, oh, there is no multi-brand athletic boutique. What was the next step? You're just you're just like I, I care so much about this. I'm going to go build it right now. I knew I felt in my soul that there was no way I was not doing this. And I knew that I didn't know anything about retail. I mean, I knew a little, but I didn't know. Someone said to me, who's going to be your merchant? I was like, what's a merchant? So, you know, they were asking me these things. And I thought a lot of my decisions, and I always say this is my instinct, or I go with my gut. If something doesn't feel right to me, I usually, you know, I would say it's 80-20. I'm not always right, but if I make a decision, it's usually... Um, going to be, if my instincts will be right on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, I always say to people, trust your, your gut. If your gut says this is something you should be doing or not doing, you know, really go with what you feel and fight for it. So I just always knew I was going to do this. And I was fortunate that I decided that I couldn't afford rent in New York city because a 10 year lease at God knows what the rent was. And retail, everyone was like, are you crazy to go into retail? You don't know anything about it. You don't know anything. You know how many times I heard that? And I just was like, okay, I, I work out all the time. I was really into dance. I was walking with a Nike fuel band, 20,000 steps a day. And when I wasn't doing that, I was in my house trying to get steps in or going up and down the stairs of our building. So when I started the business, I just was like, I'm going to get someone to help me because I knew that was the thing. And so I, I asked the people that I thought would give me the best people. And I found someone, 
uh, a woman named Jane Harkness, who I love and I still work with. And she was the founder of the co-op at Barney's. So, which was very similar because it was emerging brands. But so everyone said to me, like, did you have a strategy? Okay. The strategy was in my head and my soul. I had, I didn't know how to make a business plan or do anything, but I just sort of went with what I, I knew the brands because there were 50 brands, let's say that were not able to sell to stores because there was no store, but I knew that in order to sell those brands that you had never heard of, I needed anchor brands that you felt safe shopping with us. That was Nike. Jen, here's my question though, is, you know, if those brands were in, you know, let me rephrase. Why were those brands not sold in stores? Was it just because nobody knew about them or they weren't quote unquote good enough for the public just yet? It was mostly mono brands like, you know, Nike, Adidas, you know, they would have their own store. And then there was no multi-brand that was focusing on women. Women were initially just, they repackaged men's clothing for women, Mm -hmm. you know, and they didn't really, you know, it, They weren't thinking in 2013, nobody was thinking about women and about activewear. But I, I've always, I mean, I just knew that I was going to class with, with that was sold out, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was taking dance or going to spinning, whatever I was doing. And there were a hell of a lot of people in Central Park, but I wanted to look a certain way that I couldn't, there was nothing. I wore a lot of Nike pro, but other than that, Adidas but Nike Pro I wore, and then I found all these brands. Google is like the magical, you know, can do anything. It's like a Houdini. I found all the brands, and I'm so compulsive and obsessive that I was willing to search nonstop for new brands, and I love doing that. And is so I, is, the, is yeah. that the differentiator? I mean, like literally that the fact that you just put in a little bit more work? Uh, no, I think it was, first of all, timing is everything. We all know that how many people have you interviewed that have said to you that, uh, you know, the timing wasn't right. I think, I think the better question is how many people have we interviewed that didn't say the timing was right. (laughs) And it's very few, but those people are very cocky. So that's, that's a different different story. (laughs) I, I have an ability to be, have humility and be humble. And I, I worked in the store the first summer. I I said, I need to learn everything about retail. And I, I knew it was going to be, uh, you know, it was going to be complicated, but once I had Jane working with me and I had, you know, again, I found these brands, they were wheeling suitcases into my apartment and showing me them on the kitchen table. And I was like, they were like, didn't know if it was safe or this was like crazy because they weren't going to an office. And we, we knew we got to Nike and they were like, you want to open a women's store in Southampton? But Southampton is like the gateway to all the Hamptons mm-hmm. and very much the same. And it's only really two blocks. So you get the same customer. So um, it was really just curating it and editing it. And that summer we sold, I worked every day except for the day that my brother graduated from law school. I came back and went to, to work, but it just taught me about, you know, we, I thought what as a consumer, what would get me excited to go somewhere, something I couldn't find anywhere else that I knew was cool and amazing. So we, all the brands, you know, some of the brands, we still like splits 59. We 
from the beginning, Jonathan wheeled a bag into my house. He's still a really good friend. And we, uh, what else was there? Uh, Beyond Yoga. I mean, Nike, though, was that brand that made you an Adidas that you would come and say, oh, they have Nike and Adidas. I feel comfortable right. shopping here. Right. I don't know these other brands. Right. You kind of, it's, it's almost like, it's not the chicken and the egg situation, but it's more like I need to draw people to my store. Or even let's say somebody has a website. You have to draw them with something familiar before you educate them on all these other unfamiliar yet probably better or just different products that are for different uses. I feel like I would feel confident if I shop somewhere and knew like one designer right. was familiar. If I didn't, I mean, if I was in Istanbul and I went to a store and didn't know any designer, that would be cool. But in New York city or in, you know, Southampton, the, I knew also that I wanted to go into retail because I wanted the feedback from the customer and, and I, you know, you can't get that online or it wasn't think about how much the internet changes or, or e-com changes from 2013 to now. I mean, it's a totally different right. business. Yeah. And in that type of business, I'm just curious in terms of be, like kind of differentiating yourself from and maybe other boutiques that maybe, maybe not don't even exist when you open up, but come along later. Right. Like how do you, how, is it just a, the curation of it? Is it just like, I think this it is was the edit yeah. and the vibe. I think yeah. We were in Southampton. We listened to my husband was like, you cannot play like hardcore rap, like blasting. And I was like, I can do whatever I want and get out. And, you yeah. know, don't tell me I can't do it. So I think it was like people, it was like, I can't tell you that summer in Southampton, we sold out of 800 square feet, 11,000 items. Wow. And I mean, I had no, like, no one wanted to work for me either. <laughs> Because they didn't know, like, if you have a summer job working at a store, you want to work somewhere that you feel that you know is going to remain in business. I was, you know, a new business, so I was hard, but I was lucky. I got great girls that worked for us, and and the store out there is still one of my... I didn't go this summer because every summer I spend every weekend there, and I this summer I just needed, after the years that we've all had, I needed, like even though it wasn't a vacation on the weekends for me, but you know, I was always working because I'm constantly searching and doing things. How did you, or when did you, and why did you figure out or decide, you know, I'm going to go also be online. So uh, what I, happened was we went, once there was proof of concept, I, I didn't want to tell anybody because I knew people, most people thought I was crazy to be doing this. During, retail was in a, like a disastrous state and there was more closed stores in New York than you could imagine. And I was ready to say I'm opening boutiques. So, you know, I opened in Southampton and then the natural path was to come to Manhattan. And my husband, who started working with us and Jane, they, everybody was like, you should open on the Upper East Side. And I was like, no, we're not opening here. We're going to Flatiron because I took a lot of classes and I love the buildings and we opened a pop-up there for a year. It was supposed to be three months. It lasted a year. And then we knew the natural progression from Southampton was to go into e-commerce. And so right when we started that store in um, Flatiron, we, which looked like a bad Barney's warehouse sale, looked like a fake Barney's warehouse sale. Farney's? And Barney's. Or Farney's if it's and fake, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we... 
we opened and then we um during at that time we started also interviewing agencies to help us build our website something i knew nothing about yeah and and when you had ju- when you just started it did you did you have a plan of like i'm going to expand this into multiple locations or did you just want to start with one boutique the I, I, the one in Southampton, I've never been somebody who wants to open, you know, people want to open a hundred stores in every mall. That's never been, I don't want more response. First of all, when you have right. a store and you, you can only be one place, like, and you're, you're in all these different destinations. It's hard to check in with the people. I mean, we have a store in Highland Park, Texas. The girls in Dallas are off the charts. Courtney, our manager is like been with me since day one there. That's that store is incredible. There are, I didn't want to open. There are markets to open stores, but I'm not in the business of opening a million stores. I don't. I I we used to spend a lot of time in Asia prior to COVID. You know, you could go from one block, three blocks, the same store would be right in Hong Kong, and I was like, how is this even possible? Who's buying all this stuff? But mm-hmm. I've never been somebody who's wanted to open up a ton of boutique, you know, yeah. boutiques and 90% of my business is online now. Yeah. Is there, is there, um, was there like a particular reason why you decided, you know, I'm going to name this business after myself. It's going to be a namesake business or was it, it wasn't the name originally. Yeah. It was, we had another name and Jane and we, I had this other guy, Jesse, who's also, and my husband, Neil, were all like, you should call it Bandier. And most people thought it was Bandier. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's so posh. It's really (laughs) Italian. It was Franca Bandera. Then it was Bandero. So, Mm -hmm. and then it it became Bandier. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we sit in meetings and people go Bandier, Jennifer Bandier, Bandier, Bandier. And I'm like, I want to sell them. But I'm I'm like, it sounds so great. It sounds so posh. (laughs) We always talk about it, you know, when you have a name like uh, that sounds super French or Italian or something, it just has this elegance to it that like anything you release has to do well, right? Like it has to sell. We're going to France next week for Paris Fashion Week. We might be doing one of the best collaborations that, that which is our bill, our business was built on being disruptive and doing things differently, you know, and we've. I always said we were that intersection where fashion and fitness collided. And when I, Nike would say, are you Dover street or are you Paragon? I said, I'm neither. I'm a hybrid. And we're always looking for collaborations to make ourselves, you know, different. And, and I like more disruptive. I mean, there are brands that I reach out to that you would be shocked um, that you would say, these are not fashion brands, but I can't explain why it gets me so excited because it's so original and different. Yeah. But so we have, a, our business is tons of collabs and we're going next week to meet with one of them, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to jinx myself. Jen, where do you see the future of, you know, fashion specifically, I guess, even athleisure going? Because I know Pat and I have talked to folks like uh, Chip Wilson from Lululemon and it's not coming to mind, but several other folks that are in the fashion business. Um and athleisure has obviously grown like significantly to the point that Lululemon is a you know multi multi billion dollar business. Obviously, the Nike Adidas's of the world are multi billion dollar companies. Beyond Yoga, Aloe, all of these companies are essentially household names at this point. Um, where does it go from here? 
well, our clothing will take is also, you know, is off duty clothing also. So if you're not in the gym, but you know, women have decided like I'm wearing sneakers and I want to be comfortable. That ship has sailed. Like women are in sneakers. So that is a huge part of our business. Mm -hmm. And I think the future is going to be, I don't, I think there will be, there's always going to be active wear, but do I think the Met Gala is going to do the active wear Met Gala? No, but I think it's just going to be a part of like, everyone's going to, people are more into their health than ever now and wellness after the pandemic. And I think that our business, like every, we have five private brands and right now we have an ongoing collaboration with New Balance, which we have, I think in November we have another drop, but then January it comes like insanity. It's the sickest clothing you've ever seen. I, I like have been dying to wear it. And we have like our brand all access, which is all access. We change it to New York city, which is for the performance but it's from the the view of New York City. I feel like all athletes, you know, brands are like California, mid, you know, Colorado or British Columbia. But no one is repping all. I almost get hit by a bike every day. There's someone like, you know, or someone's like doing pull-ups on scaffolding. So we're looking, we look in our things. So there's going to be that active component. We're always going to be active, all access. And then we have Wesley, which is sweats and we're morphing it in to a little more elevated. We're mm. always going to have sweat. The sweat industry is enormous. Jen, if you, for us, Jen, for those that are listening now that, you know, <laughs> are passionate about fashion, let's call it. And they have a deep love for, you know, clothing, accessories, et cetera, or, you know, want to be involved somehow in the fashion business. What's your advice for them? I mean, what should they be thinking about? Should they even go into fashion? I mean, is it just oversaturated now with, brands galore. I mean, give us your two cents. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in fashion. I'm an expert on like what emotionally, like I, my personal feeling is like, I get so excited by things you can't even imagine that like nobody would care about. I'm like, I, I, I mean, I think that fashion is here to stay. You know, it's, it's becoming very different. You know, you have to, but I would say this, Go with your gut and, you know, pro you should definitely pursue. If you want to go into fashion, then go into, like, make it happen. You know, you don't, there's always a way there's, you could work for a blogger. Like we work with Sincerely Jules um, and she has like over almost 7 million followers. We have an ongoing collaboration with her. She's a California girl. She's the coolest. She parlayed a business into this, you know, be blogging into this massive business. She's the coolest, loveliest person to work with. I spent a lot of time in LA. She doesn't look bad in a photo. I hate taking a picture with her. She's such a goddess, but, and she's so, she's just, I think there's so many different avenues mm. that you could go into. Yeah. And it's such like a, just like an evolving space. Like who would have thought we'd be at a place where like streetwear and, like luxury, like luxury yeah. work. Cause streetwear wasn't, wasn't luxury before like collide. And now the the most expensive brands are putting out streetwear clothing or streetwear inspired. Oh clothing. my God. It's crazy. Yeah. So it'll it's be so exciting. crazy, but yeah. I think there's something for everyone. And we, we did a program with Parsons where we had um, a contest to see this was a long time ago, 
the best like designers. And this is when active was, was just becoming sort of on the main stage. And now um, one of the girls who was a runner up, she wasn't the winner of the contest to be a, to have her, her uh, collection uh, manufactured by us. And for us to sell it, she works for us because I always say like, you might not win. Jennifer Hudson came in number six and, and you don't remember the person that probably, I don't remember who won that year. And I probably watched it. I'll be honest with you. I don't yeah. watch it now. <laughs> I do watch a lot of TV. Was it fan- yeah, was, you just realized- was it Fantasia? Oh, I don't know if she was that year. I feel like, I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember, but that's initially when it came out, I was into Same, it. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, but now I don't, I, I don't watch any, but Amanda Klutz, who was a studio B band at Bandier instructor and she had a horrific, her husband, Nick, died last year. He was a Broadway actor, is now on Dancing with the Stars. She has a show. Um, she's on The Talk in L.A. Mm-hmm. She's one mm-hmm. of the hosts. Oh, but nice. what a tragedy. Yeah. yeah. I did confirm it was Fantasia that won that year. Wow. Ooh, I love that you Googled that while we're on Fantasia has had an amazing career, yeah. though. She's had a couple of albums. But to your point, I, I've always thought that, too. It's like you know, just because you don't get first or second place, like you see, you see all these people and they didn't really make much of their careers. It almost. It seems like it's like a curse to get first or second place. Cause, cause uh, maybe they're not able to live up to the hype or something. Yeah. But then like, you'll see someone that maybe didn't even barely made it to like the top 10 and they were, they went on and had an incredible career. So yeah, you, you never know. I mean uh, yeah, it, it just, and listen, I think that's all part of everyone's story. And the more honest people are about how tough it was. And, you know, if they inspire other people that feel like they can't do anything and that, you know, cause it really sucks when everyone tells me that their business is so perfect and everything's great. And I'm thinking like, what the, what am I doing wrong? Because like everything isn't perfect and they're, and then they'll go out of business or something will happen. I'm like, why didn't they just be honest with me about, or, who knows? I don't, or, I don't know. Or maybe they actually thought it was being perfect, <laughs> and that's why I didn't really work on the business, and that's why it went out of business. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it'd be. It'd be. Anyways. Yeah. So, I mean, this is – yeah, Posh, did you have any other questions? I'm good to go. Jen, appreciate your time. This has been great. Uh, I'm so you know. sorry. I was so oh, late. I mean, no, not no, late, okay. but I had so many malfunctions. <laughs> I'm not – as I said, I'm usually the technology person who fixes everything in the house, but um, – Tonight was just a nightmare. You're good. You're good. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And I really hope if one person is listening and they get inspired from, you know, coming from being the worst student and being the stupidest to, I mean, I, it, you know, I can't even believe what has happened. I'm so grateful and I feel so lucky to be on a podcast with <laughs> two fabulous, fantastic, gorgeous men. So <laughs> have a you. great day, and I'll see you guys soon. Got it. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye.